Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Joining me on today's podcast is Chuck Bath. Chuck is the Portfolio Manager on the Diamond Hill Large Cap Strategy, as well as the Large Cap Concentrated Strategy. Chuck also serves as the Assistant Portfolio Manager on the Long Short Strategy. Chuck started in the industry in 1982 at Nationwide Insurance before moving over to Diamond Hill in 2002. He is a graduate of Miami of Ohio University and received his MBA from The Ohio State University. Chuck has been on Morningstar's Ultimate Stock Pickers roster since June of 2012. The Ultimate Stock Picker roster includes top domestic stock fund managers with tenure greater than the category average, which is the large cap value blend and growth category, uh, and one, three, five, and tenure returns that are greater than the broad equity market returns. Today, Chuck and I will be talking about his history, his time in the industry, and how he's evaluating companies when considering them for inclusion in the large cap and large cap concentrated strategies. Thank you and enjoy. Chuck, thanks for joining me. Uh, Your colleague, Chris Bingaman, shared a story from his childhood about how he learned about value investing through his father's collection of coins minted with actual silver that exceeded the value of the coin itself as the price of silver moved higher. You've been a value investor your entire career. Was there anything that keyed the focus on value, or is it just part of your DNA? Well, inherently, it's the most logical way, in my mind, to look at any asset in which you're investing, comparing price to value, whether it be an office building, uh, a bond, even a stock. Um, It it makes the most logical sense. Um, In terms of sort of in my DNA, uh, my... I was fortunate my family invested a little bit too, not with large sums of money, but for incredibly long time periods. Uh, my grandfather bought shares of Exxon, which are still in our family, what, 65 years later. <laughs> and so that is a long term. And, but it's not just that, uh, uh, just seeing the compounding of, of, of over time of a successful investment taken with a long-term perspective, uh, it, it, it makes an impression. And that I was very fortunate at a young age to to learn that and uh, say the intrinsic value makes a lot of sense to me inherently in terms of as as logical investor, but also the long term time horizon. Now that I've you know been in, in business for almost forty years and I'm re- approaching my sixty fifth birthday, why I find the uh, looking back over long periods of time the success of a long term strategy uh, has left a long impression because I'm not reading about it. I lived it right. I bought my kids Disney shares uh, when they were much well, younger. Hopefully, they'll they, think the same thing 50 years from that's, now. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what happens with mm-hmm. that. So you became an equity analyst in 1982 and started managing in 1985. Um, what are some of the differences? And I know they're vast, so we don't have to get into all of them. But the differences in the economy and the investing landscape then and, and what we see now. Oh, well, we could talk quite a bit about it, but let's hit the most important issue is inflation. Mm-hmm. At the time, inflation was... Uh, had fallen back from double digits, but was high and perceived to be uh, unmanageable. Uh, in- high interest rates and a, and a tight uh, Federal Reserve brought inflation under control. And really, uh, lower and lower levels of inflation have pretty much defined my uh, investment career. And with lower levels of inflation, we've been able to have lower interest rates and let lower interest rates leads to higher multiples and equities. Mm-hmm. So not only have we had higher earnings growth and good dividend yield, but we've had expanding PE multiples. 
pretty much for, what, 37-odd years now. That has been unusual, uh, the most unusual aspect of my inf investment career. And for a lot of the younger people getting in invest into investing now, don't even sort of understand what it was like living in an inflationary world. Right. And, and, it was, and it wasn't good for investors or, or, or your, your general public as well. So, so focusing on that, so looking back in the, in the mid-'80s, and people can look at the movie Wall Street, which provides kind of a, a visual of business, whether it's monstrously huge cell phones, raucous trading floors, um, the limited nature of information electronically. Now, you know, we've got the Internet and news 24-7, and you've got a Bloomberg terminal on your desk. So how is that? Do you think that makes things harder, or do you think that makes things easier? You want to make sure you don't make, doesn't make things different. The long-term, uh, disciplined, intrinsic value approach I've used since 1985 was developed in a period of time that, that prior to the vast around, amount of information being readily available, but it was not dependent upon vast amounts of information being readily available. Now that now that, that is available, it doesn't change the strategy. And I, the tendency, I think, of investors has been to overreact to short-term news because they're getting mm -hmm. so much of it. And that's what I, I, I'm always trying to guard against. I'm trying to, th to, when I look at news, I'm trying to think, how does this expect, affect the intrinsic value five years from now? Many times there's no impact whatsoever. I, I often ask myself, I say, three years from now, will I be looking back? Will I understand why this stock traded down in that news? And often the case, or the market itself, often the case is no. And so I try to, when evaluating important information you receive, keep that long-term perspective to make sure you don't overreact to, sh to short-term changes in information. Right, and especially recently, it's that hyperactivity and that hyper knee-jerk yes. reaction to anything that comes out. Do you have any uh, key mentors, bosses, investors that had a really big influence on how you think about investing? Yeah, my uh, my prior uh, boss at my previous employer, um, Harry Shermer was his name. No one knows about him. He was a fantastic investor. No one knows him because he basically ran uh, Nationwide Insurance's internal account, and that was it. There were no outside investors in his portfolio, but his portfolio returns were outstanding. And they, they were outstanding because he, he was the, one of the most disciplined investors I'd seen in terms of uh, waiting for opportune times to make an investment when the price uh, discount to intrinsic value was meaningful. Now, we didn't have the discipline of calculating intrinsic value at that time, so it was, it was more estimated. Uh, and we didn't even necessarily talk in those terms, but we certainly talked in terms of, of the price we're, pay, we're paying relative to the value we're receiving and the opportunity for that value to compound over time. And that was one of his true strengths was his patience as an investor to uh, invest in companies he was confident could compound, grow, compound value in long periods of time and then participate in that growth as an investor. So you're a long-term investor. We've, we've talked about that, and you've, you've mentioned it. It's something that we focus on as an entire firm, looking out five years at least. Um, and that's whether through incentive compensation structure uh, or how we determine the intrinsic value of a company. Turnover in a portfolio can be a good thing, taking gains on winners or limiting downside on losers. For businesses that you've held for over a decade, what is it about them that gets you comfortable holding them for so long? Yes, that's a good question. It is their ability to grow value over long periods of time. And in order to do that, they have to maintain their competitive edge in the marketplace. What, it's interesting. One of these companies is Parker Hannafin. We've owned since uh, I joined Diamond Hill in 2002. The first meeting I ever, investment meeting I ever attended in March of 1982 
was a Parker Hannifin meeting. And I remember my discussion with Harry Shermer, who was my boss at the time we owned the, the stock then. And we discussed the importance not of uh, the PE multiple or the uh, what the next quarter looked like, but their, their strong market shares in attractive end markets. And that was a, a different way of looking at, at Parker Hannifin, the company, but it was very important to look in, excuse me, Parker Hannifin investment, but very important to looking at Parker Hannifin as the company because the company's competitive position in the marketplace was so outstanding. It was, it was able to compound value over a long period of time. And if you look back to 1982 till now, a very unexciting uh, name like Parker Hannifin has done very well. And I think uh, as I have grown, hopefully grown as an investor over time, one thing I have learned is I focus less and less on um, the uh, accounting and more on the economics. In other words, less quantitatively, more qualitatively. And by qualitative, I mean this, the competitive position in the marketplace, the type of market it serves. Are they an oligopoly? Are they a monopoly? Uh, what's the competitive edge they have in the marketplace? And those are the names I can find myself being a successful investor in for a long period of time. So following up on that, um, when you're looking at a company, what are you looking for in a management team? In other words, you know, what makes a good CEO um, like Bob Iger at Disney? What yeah. makes them special? Using Bob Iger's example, he, he has built this company focused on a uh, strategy of, of monopolizing is too strong a word, but acquiring content in a, in a world where content is becoming more and more valuable, and that differentiates Disney. So their ownership of content has been very important as the market uh, has shifted to a more streaming world, and, that, and that's the access they bring the, the access they bring to the table. It was less important to, to the price they paid and more the content and what the value that Disney could add to that content once they got control of it. And th I'm using that as an example, but it's typical of what I'm looking for in management is, is uh, a very long term focus, a focus on increasing the intrinsic value of the company, the competitive positioning in the marketplace, and not on short-term earnings. Recently, I heard another company presenting, and I felt that they were they talked about um, their near-term near earnings shortfall we did not need to be concerned about because they're doing an accelerated share repurchase that will allow them to hit their EPS numbers. That is not what I'm looking for. To me, uh, that type of reinvestment re, uh, of capital is a poor use of capital in order to uh, pump up, if you will, short-term numbers that has nothing to do with the competitive position of the company in the marketplace. So I use that to compare and contrast. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a company who's, who are investing and building the strategic value in the marketplace, their strength, their competitive position in the marketplace. Yeah, so that second company just kind of playing the numbers game. Exactly. Just trying Wall, to The Wall Street game, I yeah. say, not just the numbers game. Yeah, exactly. Trying to uh, assuage concerns of investors that they're going to miss the next quarter. Uh, I don't think Bob Iger's worried about the next quarter. He's right. worried about the next decade. Well, and that's, you know, just talking about Disney from, from my standpoint, more of the layman's standpoint. But mm -hmm. when I go to Disney World or Disneyland and I see Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, and you just think, you know, my God, how can they not do well? Right, but it's right. part of that building the content rather than focusing and the on the content. And the content has been being built, yeah. not just by Bayer, but his predecessors for, what, since the 1920s, we're to almost 100 yeah. years now. Yeah. And that is, uh, that is a unique franchise that is really cannot be replicated. And uh, but it's very powerful in the marketplace, and they don't they don't hesitate to take my money. Uh, <laughs> they do we that. Give them, we give them quite a bit. So the flip side of that, so we we've heard about good companies and how you're analyzing them. You know what's what's a red flag? What's something that makes you say, okay, now I've got to start thinking about not just the numbers game that we talked about, but 
What is it that creates a red flag that makes you really yeah. worry? Let me, uh, there's a couple of similar companies which were both unsuccessful investments for, I can use an example, IBM and Goodyear Tire. Um, both of them shared similar characteristics, inexpensive valuations, but we felt they were, they the, in the niche they were serving, in the case of, of uh, IBM middleware software, in the case of Goodyear Tire, high-end uh, tires that was underappreciated in the marketplace as the market focused on problems elsewhere in their business. Why did we find ourselves pr proven incorrect? It was because in the uh, IBM middleware business started to slow down and even turn negative. Goodyear, the uh, high-end tire business became com more competitive and Goodyear's uh, position in the marketplace wasn't as strong as we thought it was. I, I like to use examples because they, they illustrate the point uh, correctly. If I'm looking for companies who are well positioned in the marketplace to grow intrinsic value over long periods of time, when I find a company I own and the reason, the purpose of owning it uh, comes under question because the, the changes in the marketplace, which I didn't anticipate, causes the stock's uh, competitive position to weaken. I tend to sell those, and I tend to sell them much more aggressively than, than the stocks who are simply appreciating and reaching our, our estimates of intrinsic value. So, you know, one of the things about the large cap strategy, I think that's a, a differentiator, uh, is the concentration. But how do you balance diversification with concentration? Considering the official benchmark, the Russell 1000 holds, as you would imagine, a thousand different companies. Um, so how do you how do you balance that out? Yeah, um, it's it's more of an art. There you, you there are there's no perfect answer, but we will say, at the core, what we're what our thought process is, if it, it is difficult to find an attractive investment at an attractive price, and we find that we wanted to have a meaningful impact on the portfolio. So if you look at about a 50 names portfolio, it average name is about 2%. That is enough for attractive investment to have a good impact on the portfolio while also maintaining a diversification in the portfolio. And it also allows us uh, to some of the names which are maybe uh, down the capitalization scale, we can still have, a, have an impact on the portfolio. They may not make it to 2%, but they're, you know, one, one and a half percent position. By those I'm talking about names that may be about $10 billion in market cap. Still names that are large capitalization, but not as large as some of the bigger holdings in the portfolio. So in the conversations that I've had, you know, on these podcasts with portfolio managers, with research uh, team members, you know, we've all focused on the strength of the research team. It's one of the backbones of the firm. How do you interact with the analysts and the other portfolio managers, and what are you looking for when you get the recommendations? Yeah, we interact regularly, but in a uh, informal sort of way. Uh, just for example, I had a conversation with Austin. I want to have a more, more conversation with Austin looking at some areas of the marketplace which may be more attractively valued right now. I was just uh, meeting with one of our analysts about one of our current holdings, which there might be some news about, while simultaneously discussing a name we were looking to buy. And when the news came out, a big uh, sort of a structural change in their company, all of a sudden we're not as interested in owning that stock anymore. But there's no real sort of organization chart lines delineating how conversations take place. If I, uh, this analyst I was speaking to, there is a sector leader in that, but I don't go talk to the sector leader to go talk to this. I just walk down the hallway and talk to the analyst and get the information firsthand and as quickly as possible. That's why I say our conversation is frequent but informal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that is the best way to um, make sure information changes hands. I will say we also have a 10 o'clock meeting every day where if analysts or portfolio managers have a point which they want to share with everyone, they can do that. Um, and, and, and we do, and, but we also will have much more in terms of the one-on-one -on -one conversations surrounding a v variety of investment um, uh, issues 
between myself and, and the other portfolio managers, mostly Chris Welch and, and Austin Hawley, who we talk sort of strategic uh, portfolio ideas as well as individual investment ideas. And then when I'm talking with the analysts, it's usually more individual investment ideas. So one of the key tenets of Diamond Hill's commitment to our clients, and we talk about it all the time, is differentiating ourselves um, with a commitment to capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's something that all of our strategies have a, a capacity level that's that's determined by the portfolio managers. So you know, how do you think about capacity, and is it something that you thought about before you were at Diamond Hill? Is that something that was in your mind when you were at Nationwide? Yeah, that's a good question. When I was at Nationwide, we... Um we were, ran it, we were running about $12 billion. I, I was heading up the equity department. Between all the portfolio managers, we were running about $12 billion, and it seemed manageable. But we started to think about it a little bit. I wouldn't say as much as we thought about it as here because our portfolios are actually more concentrated here than they were at Nationwide. Why are they more concentrated? Because I think the, that is what our clients are looking for to give a more differentiated, less uh, index-like product. We have much more resources now as well, too, but we're also running a little bit more concentrated portfolios. And some of our names, which are in the large cap fund, are also held in the long short fund, which can affect capacity as well, too. But Chris Welch, who's, who's a colleague who looks very closely at the capacity, we monitor this very closely, we, we've come to conclude it's probably 12 and a half to $15 billion, I think closer to $15 billion, where we would think about that was our capacity limit. But I also want to be sure, err on the side of closing down capacities too soon rather than too late because I would never want to uh, do a hard close for our clients. Uh, we have a lot of clients dependent upon us to uh, maintain access. So any sort of closing in the large cap strategy, I would want it to be on a, in a soft nature so that our, none of our clients were put out. In order to do that, we have to make sure we probably close maybe a little bit too, too soon than too late. Yeah, and that's, I got to tell you that coming here to Diamond Hill three and a half years ago, that was something that was completely foreign to me, talking about capacity, coming from a very large asset management firm where capacity was two to three times, no matter what level we were at. So it's, right. it's very refreshing to see us kind of standing our ground and saying, this is our capacity and we're doing it for our clients to make sure that those that are invested are protected. And it's yeah. very refreshing. Importantly, when I see other large, the perception that large cap strategies are, you know, unlimited in their capacity. When I look at those very large portfolios, they're run in ways entirely different than ours. Mm-hmm. For example, they may own a name in the in the portfolio they're not that crazy about, and they're taking an underweight position. If we're not happy with a name, we have a zero-weight position in the portfolio. Right. And you start moving sector moves rather than, than stock moves. I didn't want capacity issues to change who we were as portfolio managers, and that's how we've come up with our capacity numbers. So what we talked a little, we talked about the 10 a.m. meeting. Um, what's an average day in the office for you, from a very broad standpoint? Yeah, you know, knowing that each day brings new and different challenges. Yeah, it's it's you spend a lot of time monitoring your current holdings. Of course, if you find information on current holdings, it's very difficult to not read it. But I'm also looking for new holdings, and and as I as you gathered from my previous discussion, what's already happened this morning, regular uh, informal discussions with analysts around the current holdings and, and prospective holdings, as well, as well as uh, sort of perusing the general business press, looking for information in, in a broad sense. There's some m- large companies with important news out today, names we don't own, but I want to understand that news, even if we don't own the name, because this might be a name we want to own in the future. Uh, so that is an example of what I'm spending a lot of time on, is looking for information on, on names we do not own in terms of trying to evaluate whether this is a holding which might be of interest, and perhaps even more important, 
is this in a holding which is more attractive than the name we currently own? That is often a, a good test of yourself. When you look at this holding, don't judge it against the broad market of all holdings. Judge it against your own portfolio and see if there's a name in the portfolio that you feel as if the current name you don't own is, is more attractive than the, than the name you do. It's more of a compared apples to apples yeah. rather than apples to a, a broad <laughs> basket of fruit. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, so in 2020, Diamond Hill celebrates its 20th anniversary, and you've been here for the majority of that for time. For the majority, yes. Uh, what changes have you seen over the years, and, and what are your expectations for the future? Oh, well, we were um, obviously, when I first joined Diamond Hill, I walked in the office the first day. I think there were eight of us. Now there are well over 100. The resources we have available to us are much more numerous. Um, I spend less of my time uh, marketing now than I did and more time focusing on investments. Back then, we were you know, losing money, looking to survive <laughs> and seeking out clients. And we are so, we're, I'm always grateful for all of our clients, but especially those ones in the early days who were, who were so supportive of us in the early, in the early years. But we were, we were all jacks of all trades, if you will. Some of our uh, marketing was being done by our accounting people, for example. <laughs> um, I was... Uh, working with the, the um, one or two analysts we have, but also the traders as well, too. Now the, we have a full professional pr trading staff as well as our, as our uh, uh, full staff of analysts, but that wasn't the case back then. So a little bit more of a um, generalist, I guess you would say, back then. Not a generalist in terms of the equity markets, but generalist in terms of our industry. Uh, I'm more back now to where, in many ways, where I was at, at Nationwide, my previous employer, where I was much, spending the vast majority of my time focused only on investing. So one of the things that, that, that I say for the end um, is we want to know about the people that work here mm -hmm. um, beyond what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. So I know you're an avid hockey fan. I am. Big fan of the Blue Jackets. Yes. Uh, I've seen you at the games. Uh -huh. um, not, not everybody may know that, but what is, what is something else about you as a person that clients would be interested to know that, that you're comfortable sharing that, uh -huh. um, that they may not know? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I, I, it, maybe it's a bit unusual, but though that I am, uh, though I am about to turn 65 years old, my, my children are fairly young, so I'm still living the, or my, certainly my youngest child is 14, so uh, I'm often asked as I'm approaching age 65 what my thoughts are in terms of my career, and I sort of feel like I, would, I want to keep working while my um, children are still young and at home, or my, my youngest certainly at, at home. And so I guess that that's, is a bit unusual that my, my youngest child was born when I was 50, and it was, uh, I, I became a, a family man late in life. I didn't get married until I was 43. A bit unusual. I don't know that. <laughs> after I've said that, I'm not sure that need, people need to know all of that. But anyway, it was it was uh, it, it's something a little bit different. It's been very you, it, when you have a family later in life, you very very much uh, very appreciative of it, and it's um, something maybe you don't take for granted, like like maybe can happen yeah. when you when you have a family much younger. Yeah. Well, I've got a, I've got a 15 year old, so going through well, the trials and tribulations of yes, high school, exactly. so yeah. uh -huh. it's uh, it's been fun. Yeah. Well, Chuck, thank you so much for joining well, me. I thank really you, Doug. appreciate it. I appreciate it. it. Uh -huh. uh, hopefully, the clients have found this useful, and we'll hopefully talk to you again sometime. Well, I would be glad to. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.